Today's guest is a prolific author in a variety of written forms, including fiction, screenplays, philosophy, journalism, and nonfiction, his most recent book being My Father's Fortune, A Life. But of course, our conversation today will focus on his work for the stage, which includes Donkey's Years, Alphabetical Order, Noises Off, Benefactors, Democracy, Copenhagen, and Afterlife, as well as adaptations of plays by Chekhov, Tolstoy, and Ennui. In New York, Off-Broadway's Keen Company has devoted their entire season to his work. From London, welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing, and I am so pleased to meet Michael Frayn. Very nice to be here. Welcome. I listed all of these literary forms. You are obviously adept in all of them, and there are many writers who gravitate only to one or maybe two. With so many means of expressing yourself in literary form at hand, how do you decide when something is going to be fictionalized, nonfiction, dramatized? I don't think you do decide. I think the idea decides itself. That's what an idea is, um, having some notion of how you're going to express it. And some things seem to express themselves as uh, drama, uh, to be performed, and some things seem to express themselves as stories to be written on the page. And until until that happens, you really don't have an idea. But have you ever had the occasion of starting to write in one form and realizing it belongs in another? Yes, I said I did it once. I think only once. Um, I wrote a play um, called Now You Know, and it didn't I really work. I couldn't really make it work. And I thought, what's the problem? What's the problem? The problem is we really need to know what all those characters are thinking privately inside their heads. And the obvious way to do that, the obvious form for that, is the novel. So I then wrote it again as a novel and published it. And then after it had come out, I thought, now I know what all the characters are thinking. Um, Maybe we should go back to the situation we're in most of the time in life where we don't know what's going on inside other people's heads and we have to work it out from what they say, their body language and so on. I then wrote it as a play. Um, I have to say neither the novel nor the play was terribly successful. But would they be an interesting read as companion pieces? (laughs) Well, they might be. It depends on what kind of reader you've got. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, the form presents itself to you with the idea, yes, usually. Yes, I mean, That's what an idea is, the, the form that it's going to take. Interesting. So let's talk about how you got started in your writing career, because writing for the theater was not the beginning. You grew up in London. You went to Cambridge. Now, you wrote some shows at school, perhaps? Um, I wrote various plays, short plays, um, sketches, heaven knows what, um, puppet plays. Those are the first things I wrote were puppet plays. So I, I built myself a puppet theatre. That was when I was, um, I don't know, 10 years old. But did you actually old. write them? I mean, children make up plays. Did you actually set them down? Uh, yes, I did, uh, because I had to read them out while I was operating the puppets. <laughs> and uh, rather read the script. Um, and if you read the script and operate the puppets, the puppets tend to float up into the air and <laughs> lean against the scenery and so forth. So it wasn't a very, it wasn't a very interesting spectacle. Um, and then at, uh, when I was at Cambridge, I wrote a review um, 
there's an annual review called the Footlights, and we used to they would do it in Cambridge, uh, the end of the summer term. And then uh, it was always done to a very professional sense. But then come to London and uh, have a week or two in a West End theatre, and it was very important because we were all very ambitious. And my show, the one I wrote, was the first one not to come to London, and it didn't come to London for good reason because it wasn't very funny. And uh, I'm afraid it put me off the theatre completely. I would behave like the the fox in the uh, parable with grapes, and uh, I said, sour grapes. Who made the decision that it wasn't very funny and shouldn't the come in? The, the people you mean the response was so poor right? that yes, whatever absolutely. auspices would bring these into London, it was very clear. Yeah. I mean, that's the trouble with comedy. The good thing about comedy is you know where you are with it. Um, if, you, <laughs> if the audience laugh, you know it's funny. Uh, but if they don't laugh... It's not funny, and, and it's no good saying, well, it really is funny, but they don't see it. But it's just, if they don't laugh, it's not funny, and that's the end of it. Huh. So you get an instant, uh, instant judgment. Anyway, I turned against the theatre, and um, I began as a journalist versus a reporter and then a columnist. And a lot of my columns were devoted to mocking the theatre and saying what a ghastly place it was, how awful it was spending an evening in the theatre. It was just uh, embarrassing. We were just waiting to see the actors drop their props or forget their lines or whatever. Were you serious when you wrote those, or were they meant to be oh, No, I was satire. very serious. No, I was very serious. Hmm. And I wrote a lot of parodies of, uh, of the fashionable plays of the day, a lot of them by people who are now my professional colleagues, um, Who did you parody? <laughs> I believe that in uh, shrouded in mist. Um, <laughs> anyway, so um, I was very anti-theatre, and I got drawn in extremely slowly. Uh, and it happened finally because uh, someone was doing um, a collection of short plays, um, and they wanted an extra one when they came into the West End in London. And the director asked me to to write a short play. Well, it's very difficult to refuse a challenge, so I, or much as I despise the theatre, I said I'd do this. Well, why did that director ask you? Did, were you told? Since obviously you'd been, you'd because been so written, negative. Yeah, because I'd written a couple of television plays, and, ah. and he'd been in one of them. That's okay. That, that, was how, that was how it started. Okay, so it's television all, was all okay. The roots of everything are very tangled, and the, and mm-hmm. the, the causes of everything are always you know, hopelessly mixed up together. One of the problems of of writing history or indeed writing plays or novels, actually finding out why people do what they do. Anyway, so he said, well, I'd write a play. I said I would. And the evening was uh, plays about marriage. They were all plays about marriage. So I wrote a very short play about a young couple who make a sentimental return to their honeymoon hotel in Venice. Um, Only now they have a, a small child. A very naive play. It was just about the difference that children make to your, to your life. And I sent it to the director, and a week later he phoned and said, I'm terribly sorry, the producer says he can't do this, it's too filthy. Well, the producer was Alexander Cohen, uh, who had a reputation for doing difficult work. I think it was he who introduced um, uh, Pinter, some of Pinter's work. Uh, Absolutely. and I was really taken aback. I said, I couldn't see anything filthy about the play at all. I said, Alexander Cohen thinks my play is filthy. And um, the director said, yes, uh, he says he could never do a play in which a baby's diaper is changed on stage. 
So I was so cross about that that I wrote three more short plays and had an evening of my own plays, and that was my first work in the theatre. Well, you make it sound so simple. You wrote the four one-acts. Then how did you find a producer? Well, um, Michael Codron, the great uh, London producer, had been on at me for years to, to write a play. So I naturally sent it to him, and he, he said he would do it. I have to say, we got universally bad notices. And in those, those days, um, there was a gallery claque, a group of people who used to come to the first night of every show in the West End. they sit up in the gallery, they all knew each other, and they would go out and have a drink in the interval and uh, discuss the play. And if they decided they didn't like it, they would come back and barrack and boo. And they didn't like my plays, and they came back and barracked the cast all the way through the second half and mm. booed at the end. Then, uh, that was bad enough, and then they booed me in the street outside after, which I, which I thought was carrying things a bit far. What was it like, as somebody who'd been complaining about the theatre, to suddenly be on the receiving <laughs> end trick, of yeah. perhaps completely inappropriate um Critical disdain, Indeed. not written, but but verbal. Um, it really didn't feel good. I uh, I disliked it very strongly. But the best thing that came out of that evening was, um, you know, the actors, uh, people in the theatre, give each other first night presents, uh, and we had a terrific cast. We were just a cast of two. Um, uh, it was called the, that's why the show was called The Two of Us. And they were Lynn Redgrave and Richard Bryars. Mm. And incidentally, because we had two stars, the show ran for six months in spite of the reviews. Anyway, uh, Richard Bryars gave me as a first-night present a uh, biography by Sheridan Morley of Noel Coward. Now, I didn't know a great deal about Noel Coward. All I knew is he had a career of unbroken success. He just had one hit after another. When I read the book, I discovered it hadn't been like that at all. He'd had a very mixed career. He had a lot of flops, a lot of very bad flops. He had one. He wrote one show called uh, The Marquise, light comedy, uh, wasn't light like my show, and um, he got not only uh, booed by the audience on the street afterwards. He got spat at. They spat at him because they not because they, they didn't like his philosophical views or his political notions or whatever. They just didn't think the comedy was very funny. Hmm. Uh, anyway, so the that showed me that um, you can survive disaster. In fact, I saw the logic of things was that if you have a, a failure, by its very nature, it doesn't last very long, and not many people see it of a success it goes on a lot of people see it so afterwards in the fullness of time people tend to remember the successes and forget the failures did you feel the two of us was a success creatively i thought it was a it was a good first shot i have to say it's been done in a lot of places in the world since uh with, everybody loves the two character success. show <laughs> yeah absolutely right they do particularly producers I wouldn't honestly put up any great defense of it now, but it, it it kind of works. Did you, whether it was on that show or or as you began writing more for the theater subsequently, was there a point at which you ever regretted the things you'd said about theater before being <laughs> in it? <laughs> um, I realized... Uh, I realized I had been a little intemperate. 
And I realized, too, I began to understand um, what a dangerous business the theatre is, particularly for the actors. And I have to say, the more I've worked with actors, the more I've come to admire them. Um, I, I really don't know. I don't have any acting ability whatsoever. Uh, I, I don't know how they have the courage to go out there and start the show now and know they've got to go on continuously from 8 o'clock until 10 o'clock or whatever it happens to be, and they can't stop and say, oh, hold on, I'll, you know, I'll take that bit again. I didn't do that very well. If you're writing, you can always do another draft. You always, And you're, you're working in private. No one sees the, uh, the awful first drafts. Um, and how actors go out there and do it, I really don't know, particularly on the first night. Hmm. So... After these first one acts, which were certainly, as you say, whether it was Alex Cohn or Michael Codron, both had a hand in in leading you in, was your next piece something that someone asked you to write? Or then did you start to get the bug and think, I'd like to have another go at this? Um, I think I, the next play or two I wrote, I wrote off my own bat and had some difficulty getting them set up, and they were not successes. Um, the first play I had, which was both a commercial and a critical success, was Alphabetical Order, which uh, I think has just been uh, revived in New York. I saw it back in the fall. Yeah. Um, and that, that, that did quite well in... in it was opened the Hampstead Theatre in London, small subsidised theatre, and then went. Then Michael Codron took it into the West End. Did you have anyone guiding you in terms of learning your craft as a playwright? You already were established as a writer, but were you self-taught, or did somebody give you tips along the way? Well, I learned a lot from the directors I worked with and the actors I worked with. My first. Well, I think three reasonably successful plays were directed by Michael Rudman, American director working in London. And uh, then when he went to the National Theatre and he couldn't uh, direct the next play because he, he thought it should be done in the West End and uh, um, he couldn't get leave from the National to come and direct it, I then moved to uh, someone who already become a friend of mine, Michael Blakemore. And Michael Blakemore has directed... Uh, most of the original productions of my plays. And um, he's wonderful to work with because he knows a lot about theatre and because, in spite of knowing a lot about the theatre, he doesn't know anything about the play you give him. You give him a play and uh, he has to ask naive questions about it, about how it works. He always makes me read the play allowed to him, which is a very painful experience for both of us. Uh, and he asks stupid questions, like, you know, why does she say that? And um, do, Wouldn't it be quicker if you just took that line out and we saw him do what he's doing, whatever. And it's all extremely irritating, but he's almost always right, because great, he's been an actor himself, and he's great feeling for what works on the stage, and great genuine intelligence, not cleverness, intelligence. And uh, particularly with, with Noises Off, which I suppose is, is certainly my biggest success, the biggest success we had together. He had a great input into it. 
he had me, a lot of the ideas uh, came from him. And when I wrote it, you know, Noises Off is about a company of uh, actors doing a farce, and you see them rehearse it, then you see it from backstage. And when I originally wrote it, I had a very elegant, smart idea that when Act Two started, our curtain and the curtain of the play that they're doing should go up simultaneously. And we should just simply see the back of the set while they do it. Which was a neat, elegant idea. But uh, Michael Blakemore said, no one is going to understand it. No one is going to have the, for start, no one's going to have the faintest idea where we are. We've got to explain uh, we're backstage in our theatre. That the play we're going to see the back of is the play we've seen the front of before. Uh, we've got to explain where all the casts have got to in their relationships with each other because we're never going to pick it up as we go along. And he also said, a uh, wonderful piece of, uh, of style, uh, we've got to introduce all the props we're going to use in the course of the act before the act gets underway. So that's what they did. And he was absolutely right. It would never would have worked without that. No one would have had the faintest idea what was going on. Some people didn't realise what was going on anyway. Um, one of the actors in the show we did in the West End said uh, an American couple came up to him in the street afterwards and said, um, you know, we, we did so enjoy the show, wonderful performance, so forth. But where does that second act take place? Is it, is it in some kind of factory? Hmm. Since you say that Blakemore reveals some things about the play to you, I have to ask, because from the first time I saw the printed script of Noises Off, it's fascinated, especially... I believe it's primarily in the second act where there's one column, which is the dialogue and one column, which is the action. Something I don't think I've ever seen in any other script. Was that how you wrote it? Or yeah. is, what's that? Yes, it, it was, was how I wrote really? it. Well, it's the only way to do it. The, it's not the separation of dialogue and action. It's separation of what goes, what they're playing on that side of the set and what is going on on this side of the set. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the... Uh, the conceit is that um, you can't say anything backstage, you can't make a sound. In fact, people do talk backstage, but the understanding here is that they don't speak to each other. And they do speak to each other and perform the usual stage directions on the other side of the, of the set. Well, writing something that's so physical, had you really visualized all of this or how much more of it came once you got into production? It pretty much all had to be visualized, though I did a lot of rewriting of it working with Michael Blakemore for a start. Then some more things came um, in rehearsal. Not a great deal, because it's so complicated to rehearse that uh, you don't have time to mess around with it very much. But once we began to um, perform it, then it became evident that it needed more work. Uh, As I originally wrote it, it was a farce up to halfway through the last act, and then it became very serious, and it became uh, whither are we bound in life, you know, is life a dream, is um, the theatre more real, etc., etc. And it became clear, since we did it in front of an audience, that the audience did not wish at that stage in the evening to know about the meaning of life. They wanted... uh, go on laughing to the end of the show and then they wanted to go home uh, so I had to rewrite it and um, we were playing originally at the Hammersmith Theatre in London and I rewrote 
the second half of the last act. I don't know how many times, over and over again during the run. I went on rewriting it until one of the actors, Nicky Henson, who was playing Gary, who was the character in the play who always comes and tells the director that your cast aren't happy about things. <laughs> so he's kind of uh, mirroring the situation in the play. He came and said uh, that the cast were refusing to learn any more uh, variants. So then we went into the West End and... Um, we had several cast changes uh, as, the, as the years went by. Each time we changed the cast, I rewrote the end of the act. When the play was done in America, I rewrote it the end of the act for Washington. And then when we moved from Washington to New York, I rewrote the end again. And when the play was revived at the National Theatre in 2000, I rewrote the end. Okay, now yeah, why, again. after having had success in the West End and in America... 25 years earlier, I don't remember the exact timing of the revival. Why would you go back and work on something that had obviously been such a success? Well, to get it right. To get it right. Um, the more often you see a play, and I've seen Noises Off in various productions, really, rather a lot of times now, um, the more your fingers itch to improve it. Hmm. Because if you see a lot of a play a lot, of, a lot of times, you can see things wrong with it, and you can see how to fix it. But... I've spoken with many playwrights who say they don't like to go back because the play was a product of where they were at that time. Oh. And they look at it with a different perspective. They are a different person when they go back. So they don't want to change it. I mean, have you decided if the play is done or if there was another revival, would you take a whack at the ending again? Well, I don't really buy this idea that plays and books are reflections, are sort of models of the state of the author's psyche at hmm. a particular time. They seem to me independent objects. And what one's trying to do as a writer is to make them as independent of oneself as possible. Uh, one of the earliest um, bits of advice about writing I remember reading, I think it was, I think it was in a book by Sartre, um, is that he said he was told by someone you should go on writing and rewriting and rewriting until you can stand back from what you've done and say, good God, did I write that? And I think that is what we're all working towards, to produce something which justifies itself, which no longer has any uh, ties to one's own uh, personality, to one's own uh, way of looking at the world or whatever, that... Uh, that tells the story as best it can be told, that recognizes the uh, the reality of the story, the independence of the story, and the independence of the characters, and give them life of their own. I mean, it's like, uh, it's like um, parents and children. What all parents are aspiring to is not going, controlling their uh, children for the rest of their lives. They want to make them independent and take over their own lives and then step back and say, oh, well, I'm so proud of him. He's uh, you know, doing well out there. So is Noises Off now out on its own? Or would you still have a go? Um, if we did another we got another revival coming up in London uh, this winter, um, it depends on who the director is and what the director says. When, I, when it was revived at the National, um, it was directed by Jeremy Sams. And he had a lot of really... I said I wanted to do various things, and he said, yeah, I want you to do some things as well. And he had some really good ideas. And between us, we got it a lot better. Hmm. Uh, and if I found a director 
for this next revival who said, look, how about trying this or trying that? I'd certainly have a go, yeah. Fascinating. question of time, as always, yeah. finding the time to do it. Let's jump back, because we leapt ahead. We had just started mentioning your first real success, Alphabetical Order. Alphabetical Order is set at a newspaper. Do you think that you'd follow the old dictum, write what you know? That you'd been a newspaper man, you said it in a newspaper? Um, well, I suppose so, yes. I mean, it was not the original... The original impulse was not uh, the newspaper saying the original impulse was to write about something something about how we organize our uh, knowledge of the world. Uh, but it came to me that um, a newspaper cuttings library uh, was, I think it's called a morgue in America, isn't it? That's it was, what they would, would be called, was the morgue. Uh, was, was a kind of model of our knowledge of the world, where, where things have been organized into language, um, and written down and then put away and you could go and uh, inspect that bit of um, knowledge if you knew how to find it. Um, and I did know a lot about newspaper libraries because I'd been a reporter on the old Manchester Guardian uh, so I knew the library there but also when you went away on stories um, if you went away to write a story in Glasgow or whatever um, you'd, you'd go and use the local newspaper library to get the background um, so I'd seen newspaper libraries as they then were all over the country. Of course, now I've completely Well, changed. now they don't exist. They don't they're, exist. They're, they're all they're digitized. All stored Everything's stored electronically. Hmm. I did think that as I was watching Alphabetical Order is that there might be certainly people younger than myself, people in their 30s or even their 20s, who truly won't understand why this place existed. <laughs> it's very difficult. We're reviving uh, another show of mine with a series of short plays and one of the plays in fact the best play in the in the evening um depends on the notion that um people don't have mobile telephones that they when they're out and about they have these public telephones um, and they tend to leave messages on an answering machine somewhere so reviving it we've been going through a period of great doubt and uncertainty as to whether we can somehow suggest this is a period piece or whether we have to drop it and uh, put something else in because no one's going to understand that people don't carry their phones around in their pocket all the time. Hmm. In the early years of your writing, you stayed pretty close to comedy in that period? Yeah. Yes. I mean, most of my plays are I guess, but there are some. Oh, I would say there are a few, few major ones that are not. Hmm. Certainly, benefactors is not a comedy. No, no, Certainly, democracy is no, not a comedy. No. Um, writing comedy, writing something that's truly funny, as you say, the audience tells you whether it is or it isn't. But it's a particular skill. And what drew you to comedy in particular for the stage? Again given the other forms in which you write? Well, when I first started writing farces, um, I do conversations like this with people who say, why do you write farce? Why don't you write about life as it really is? And I thought, what What are their lives like? <laughs> um, my life is um, largely consists of farce. Um, it seems to me the most natural expression of the, of the, of the way things are. And it seems, does seem to me that a lot of things in life are inherently comic. And if you're going to write about <laughs> your own experience of life, uh, it's going to come out funny a lot of the time. Hmm. 
So Noises Off was an enormous success. As you say, you did a couple of adaptations after that, and I want to talk about the adaptations in a little bit. But your next major work was Benefactors. It was a real turn from comedy. And you talk about what real life is like. It's a very real depiction of two couples, their relationship. Um, Did you consciously choose at that point to try not a different style, but a a different voice? No, I didn't think so. Um, I mean, some things in life, a lot of things in life are comic, but some things are, are not comic, some things are serious. And that story is not really a, a comic story so that's the way it came out I have to say the the way I did it was influenced by something I'd uh, a play I'd translated I translated a modern Russian play called Exchange and in Exchange uh, the um, the characters are just there on the stage and they talk to us direct and they tell us what they're feeling and thinking um, and I kind of had that in my fingertips when I came to write Benefactors. Uh, so you might say I pinched the idea um, from uh, from exchange. Hmm. Since we're talking about the adaptations, you have done a lot of adaptations over time. What draws you to want to do English versions of foreign plays. You've done a number of Chekhov's. I mentioned a couple of the others. What What's the attraction? Well, I would not call them adaptations. I call them translations. Okay. Um, and I only translate um, from plays that I can read in the original. Ah. Um, and there's only two languages I can really read well enough to translate from, Russian and, and French. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've translated plays out of both those languages. I have done one adaptation. I've done two adaptations, I said, but the uh, most successful adaptation was of Chekhov's first play, uh, which I translated, but also um, heavily reorganized. You're and speaking of Wild Honey. Wild Honey, absolutely. Yes. Or, uh, I call it Wild Honey. Doesn't he left it? There's no title page right. on the original one. So. Um, and I, I did that simply because uh, it's his first play, which he wrote unbelievably when he was 21 maybe when he was young but certainly no older and it's, it's very difficult to take that in because it's, it's full of wonderful stuff but it's a complete mess as a play it's about six hours worth of material and it's a great model of comedy and serious stuff about the state of russia and so on and it seemed to me that uh, by far the best material in it was was the comedy it was a comic writer checker he began as a comic writer uh, people sometimes forget that um and i thought that if I uh, extracted the comic line, particularly the farce, there's a lot of farce in the play, if I uh, brought out the farce, it would, uh, it, would, it would make a workable play. So that's what I did. But with the late Chekhov plays, I've um, stuck absolutely as closely as I can to the original, um, the original text. And the, I hope the English feels as close to the Russian as it's possible to get. Certainly. Now, some that you've done are not well-known plays, but when you take a more familiar work, there are 
a number of translations or adaptations already on the shelf. So what is it you're looking to bring to it? Is it the fidelity? I'm looking to bring... Uh, I've, you said I've done one or two uh, less well-known plays. I, the only one I can think of offhand is uh, the modern Russian play I, mm-hmm. I talked about. Um, but uh, Chekhov is, is, is reasonably well-known. Let's go that far. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Chekhov is reasonably well-known. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as, I only do them because, as far as I know, I'm the only person around who can actually both read the original Russian has got some experience in, in playwriting. Well, usually, again, the word, this issue of translation versus adaptation is very often there is an interim, Indeed. literal translation yeah. that someone who is simply knowledgeable in the language creates, yeah. and then an author takes that and creates... Well, I, I do, it's a heroic uh, effort. I don't know how people do it. <laughs> this is how I tried to do it when I began, because the first thing the National Theatre asked me to do was uh, to translate some Goldoni. And I said, well, I've only got tourist Italian. I really couldn't possibly translate from the Italian. And the then dramaturg at the National Theatre said, oh, we don't bother about that. We just go out to the bookshop and we buy some standard translations of Goldoni and you take them home and uh, you, know, oh, you, existing you write it, lash it together to make a, make a text. So I was very keen to work for the National Theatre, so I said I'd have a go. So hmm. I took all these versions of uh, a Goldoni play home, I can't remember which one it was now, and I looked at them all. And I simply could not reconstruct what the original was like. I couldn't get the feel of what the comedy was like through these different... I mean, it was like looking through a variety of, of, of different dirty windows in, into a room. Uh, and you can see through this window, you can, it looks like this, and through that window, it looks like that. But I, I couldn't really work out what the room was like. So I said, but why don't you ask me to translate a play out of Russian? I actually read the original. So the dramaturg was very struck by this idea. It was a rather original idea, starting with the with the uh, language in which the play was written. Hmm. And that's how I got into translating Chekhov. Wild Honey was not directed by Blake Moore. No, recall. by Christopher Morahan. Um, I'm going to ask you about a rumor I remember from by the time it got to New York, which was that I think Morahan had become ill and that by the time it was on Broadway... Ian McKellen, who was starring in the show, was more or less directing it. Uh, it's perfectly true that uh, Chris got ill when we were doing the run in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was basically his... Uh, uh, I mean, I had to take over some rehearsals mm-hmm. in Los Angeles. Um, but I really, when we got to New York, it was it was the production that Chris had done. Um, the... Um, I, what went wrong? Why, why was it not a success in New York? It'd been a big success at the National Theatre. Uh, and it was done in New York, as a lot of plays are, are done, because the New York Times had reviewed it in London and liked it, and uh, so producers think they're, they're safe. They're going to get good reviews from the New York Times in New York. But it doesn't always work out. And one of the reasons it doesn't always work out is because they have to recast with an American cast. And apart from McKellen, we had an American cast. A very good American cast, I have to Tim say. Burton, they, they were Kim terrific, Cattrall, But they were not, li- not liked by the critics mm. who said, uh, because why? Because they were not like the British cast? Uh, because uh, maybe people felt that um, 
that if Russians began to speak English, they should be speaking British English rather than American English. I don't know. But they were good actors. They were really good cast. Kim Cattrall and, and so on. They were really oh. wonderful people. But that was that was what happened. The, the reviewers didn't like the cast. Some of the early plays, to my knowledge, did not come to New York. I remember Alphabetical Order got done at the Long Wharf yeah, in New Haven. Very good production. Very good production. A terrific review from Clive Barnes. And mm-hmm. In those days, uh, um, the received wisdom was if Clive Barnes liked something, you were made. So I retired. You know, go home, I'll put up my feet. Nothing came of it. I mean, mm-hmm. it had a good run at the Long Wharf. But, uh, and no Donkey's Years, did that get done originally? I, I don't Donkey, recall. I don't think Donkey's Years has ever been played in America. I may have forgotten. It may may have been an out-of-town production somewhere. Hmm. So do you, I mean, obviously part of it is a producer who wants to put it on, but do you think that some of those early plays at least were falling prey to it's too British, the Americans won't get it? Possibly. Possibly. Hmm. I have to say that people said this about Noises Off when it was first done. Really? Okay, this will work in England because people know what an English sex farce is. Uh, but no one outside England knows what a, a British English sex farce is, so no, this is going to be impossible to play this anywhere else. Well, as you know, it's been played absolutely everywhere in the world that, that people do plays, and somehow people are prepared to reconstruct what a British sex farce might, might, might be like in order to understand the play. <laughs> Jumping ahead, Copenhagen, a very intimate, serious play based on a real incident about which very little was known except that it had happened. So was that a show you did a lot of research on? I did a massive amount of research, yeah. How did I get into it? I, I didn't know anything about science at all, but I studied philosophy. Uh, if you study philosophy, you can't help but know something about quantum mechanics because all the philosophical implications of it are so weird, and they get weirder as time goes on. Um, but I'd never heard about the meeting in uh, Copenhagen, on which the play is based, between Werner Heisenberg and Niels Bohr in 1941, until I read a book by the American writer Thomas Powers called Heisenberg's War. And um, he gave the best account he could of that meeting from all the... It's a very well-researched book, been Mm -hmm. much attacked. It's a very well-researched book indeed. His research is very thorough. And he gave the best account he could on the basis of the evidence he could lay his hands on of what happened at that meeting. No one agrees uh, what it was, least of all Heisenberg and Bohr. And it was when I read uh, the Powers account that I thought, well, this kind of focuses the difficulty we have. The, the question was why Heisenberg had gone to Copenhagen, why did he want to have this meeting with Bohr when he knew it was going to be extremely difficult and embarrassing for everyone. And it seemed to me the difficulty of knowing what Heisenberg was up to kind of focused the difficulty of knowing why anyone does anything, uh, why indeed one does what one does oneself. Hmm. After the play was a success, more came out or yeah. was ferreted out about the real incident. Yeah. As someone who says, you'll keep writing if you need to, to get it right. Certainly you'd gotten Copenhagen right based on what was known at the time. Now that 
there's been more light shed on it. Is there any temptation to go back and alter the play to incorporate that? I don't know quite what to do. There's a, a revival of it setting up here. And it's true that the production of the play has changed the record. And if I was starting to write the play now, I would do it differently. Uh, it doesn't change the the central point of the play. It doesn't make it any easy. What, what's come out doesn't make it any easier to know why what Heisenberg was up to, uh, why he wanted to see war, uh, what exactly he was doing on the German nuclear program, whether he was really trying to build the bomb or whether he wasn't, and if he. Um, uh, why he failed to make the crucial calculation. Um, but the circumstances um, are not as thought. And the only thing that everyone has agreed about that meeting, including Eisenberg and Bohr, is that it spoiled their friendship. And it was very difficult to put it together again. They never quite did. Well, what has emerged from the, the documents is that he didn't immediately spoil their friendship. That there were, in fact... It, it'd been much, it, everything has been disputed about that meeting. A lot of people have said since the play came out, no, uh, Heisenberg never went to Bohr's house. Bohr wouldn't receive him at his house because he was so upset at getting a visit from... A, um, when Denmark was occupied by the Germans, getting a visit from a German physicist. He would only see him at his institute in the centre. Well, what has emerged is a letter written by Heisenberg to his wife during the week that he was in Copenhagen. So it's an absolutely contemporary document. Now, everything else, there's been a problem of memory, people trying to remember 15 years later what happened. Uh, this is actually a contemporary record. Heisenberg doesn't mention the conversation in the letter, probably because um, he knew that he was under surveillance by the Gestapo and thought the letter might be opened. But he does talk about his meeting with Bohr. And he certainly went to the Bohr's house. As soon as he got off the train from Berlin, he went straight to the Bohr's house and he spent the evening there. That was on the Monday. The surprise is that he went back to the Bohr's house on the Wednesday evening and spent the evening there again. And from the internal evidence, it's pretty clear that the, the conversation occurred at some point in that evening of the second meeting. But the big surprise is that he went back to the boss house for a third meeting on the Friday evening. Again, spent the evening with Niels Bohr, two days after this conversation which had ended their friendship forever. And Heisenberg says in the letter, in many ways, it was a particularly nice evening. Niels Bohr read aloud to me, and I played him the Mozart A major piano sonata. So the one thing uh, we thought we knew about the meeting is not so. Writing about history, if more is revealed, is a challenge. When you wrote Democracy, you were writing about very recent history. Um... Is there, is it easier to write about the distant past than the recent past? And of course, distance being relative in this case, because they were both 20th century. It's certainly easier to write about a period when the record has settled down and there is now an agreed record which is unlikely to change. So when Schiller wrote uh, Maria Stuart, writing about the relations between Queen Elizabeth of England and Mary Queen of Scots, it was a settled record. I mean, he he uh, made very free with the record and invented complete 
uh, scenes put in conversation, which he knew were not in the record. But it's unlikely that anyone's going to come up with some new documents about uh, Elizabeth or Mary. Which or any of the relatives are going to turn up and complain. <laughs> no, no relatives are going to turn up and complain. No, they're not. Um, with democracy... Uh, the record has changed a bit, largely because um, the old um, East German records, the Stasi files of the Stasi and the files of uh, Soviet security, have n- are now being researched. Increasingly, there's still there's still kilometres and kilometres of Stasi files which people haven't examined yet. There's just so much of them. Uh, but so some new stuff has turned up, uh, turned up, but I think nothing that really affects the so far the structure of the play although it get my one of the things we, with democracy that struck me it was hugely successful here and when it was done in America it was a qualified success if you don't mind right. my saying so and I would say that might be one of those cases where truly there was a difference between the ability of English audiences versus American audiences, and that's that Americans' news reports are very blinkered, and we know much more about what's going on in our own country than what goes on elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Do you think that the familiarity that the English had with what had gone on in Germany in the recent past had something to do with the reception of the play in the two places? Because I think to the Americans, other than having heard who Willy Brandt was, most of them probably don't know the first thing about what was going on. Well, I'd like to think that uh, British were well informed about German domestic politics, but I find it very difficult to think of any evidence that that's so. (laughs) When people in this country said, what are you writing when I was writing democracy? And I said, I'm writing about um, the uh, German parliamentary politics, the internal politics of the, of the uh, SPD in Germany, uh, you can see their eyes had sort of fallen and shut even before I got to the end of the sentence, because <laughs> they just thought it sounded so boring. Um, but it was well, but a... As advertising copy, it was probably not the snappiest no, no. way of describing <laughs> it. <laughs> Indeed. But I think... I don't think that's so. I'm not quite sure why it doesn't uh, go. I mean, the, the review I got in the New York Times for for the New York production, but I think possibly the best review I've ever had for anything. Certainly, the biggest review it covered the whole page, but uh, it didn't it didn't save it. No, somehow it didn't uh, catch people's fancy. You never know. No one ever knows. Not even producers who uh, whose living depends upon it. No knows what's going to catch people's fancy. Anything that's a matter of public taste, um, it's always uh, a surprise how people react. Not just plays, uh, new gadgets, uh, new computer software, anything. You never know until you get in front of the public quite how they're going to react. For some reason, uh, London public liked it and New York public um, didn't really respond to it. Hmm. You were drawn again to historical record with Afterlife, writing about Max Reinhardt. Yeah. What was the attraction of his story? Um, the weird parallel between his life and the play to which he spent most of his life being shackled, 
Liedemann Afterlife by Hoffmannsthal, which he did over and over and over again, uh, which is about the evils of which wealth, uh, how if you, you know, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you've got to become poor and, uh, and do good works. And the apparent total disconnect in, in Reinhardt's mind, Reinhardt, uh, he's never quite as wealthy as uh, he appeared to be, um, but he certainly lived the life of a rich man and um, never repented of that. Um, and there's absolutely no evidence I could find that he'd ever seen the connection between the play he was producing and the life he was leading. Uh, but it was, um, I was just interested in the parallel. And I have to say that um, the audience in London uh, was as even cooler about that play in general than the New York audience was about uh, democracy. Hmm. It didn't quite go. Is it a play that you're satisfied with, or do you think that's something you would want to revise given the opportunity? Um, I'd love to see it done again. I think I think it has got something in that play, and I've um, I've learnt something about from the reaction in London, and done a bit of rewriting on it already. Um, and I think also we didn't quite, and Michael Blakewell would agree, we didn't quite get the production right. Um, what Reinhardt is saying in the play is. Uh, we must use our imagination. We must uh, uh, create the world of, uh, of every man by imagining it. And in fact, his production, as it was played in Salzburg year after year, is done very simply. It's just on the steps of the cathedral, a few props like tables and chairs, um, and no great sense of, of, uh, of illusion. There's no attempt to produce a theatrical illusion. Um, and we did a rather large-scale production in London with a huge set. And I think we should have done it very simply and forced the audience to use their imagination. Whether it would have changed the fate of the play, I don't know. But um, I think that would have been more in line with what we were saying. As someone who admittedly was dealing with sour grapes and writing dark pieces about the state of the theater as a young man, now that you've spent so much time successfully in the theater, do you, do you think you've learned more about the theater and that has made you accept it and it accept you? Or do you think that young man just didn't know what he was talking about? I think a young man didn't know what he was talking about. <laughs> if you can't, uh, if you write plays and, and uh, you work with directors on them and you watch them rehearsed and you watch them played in front of audiences, you can't help but find out a bit more about the theatre. It's just uh, in the nature of things. So, at this point, the recent plays have been much more serious. You started off as a farceur. Do you still have an interest in going back to that kind of work, or do you think you've changed as a writer? Well, I have to say, when uh, Copenhagen was running, we did another show called Alarms and Excursions, which is some short, funny plays, which we're just about to um, revive this summer. 
Uh, so I haven't stopped. Uh, haven't stopped writing comedy. But do you think? But Alarms and Excursions was twelve years ago or so. Was um, it? Oh, God. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so and again, you say they're short plays. You know, yeah. those evenings are are harder to get on. It's interesting how you've moved towards these plays based in fact and in yeah. the historical record. It just happens that way? The ideas just come? Or or do you think you're pursuing something differently? Well, the ideas just come, or they don't come. But one, in fact, I'm writing at the moment is a comic novel, um, entirely fictitious, no real characters in it, and um, hopefully comic. Looking back at all of the plays, there's some 15 plays, I believe, and I, that doesn't count the individual one acts. Do you think there's one that really deserves to be seen again that hasn't been brought back? I mean, Donkey's Years had a revival here in London not so long ago. Yeah. I mentioned Alphabetical Order yeah. finally reaching New York after yeah. such a long period of time. Is there any other one in there that either hasn't been seen in London in a long time or had never got to New York that, that you think should be looked at? Yes, there's a play called Here, um, which was done at the Donmar. 1993. Uh, sorry? 1993. Was it 1993? Yep. Oh, you're much better informed about the, the history of the thing than I am. And it was not a success. It wasn't a complete failure, but it, it wasn't really a success. Well, since then... I've thought a lot about it. And um, two different American directors have wanted to do it in New York, and I've worked with them and rewritten the play a couple of times. Then it was done by in a small theatre in London a couple of years ago. And um, I thought, and they did the new version, and I thought... It was okay. And I also saw that it still needed some fixing, so I've rewritten it yet again since then. And I think privately it's, it's my best play, and I would love to see that done. Very easy to do, cast of three, simple set. I'm curious, and you say you worked with two different American directors oh. on it. With a goal of it being done, or just they had an interest in the play? What was the nature of No, no, they of wanted that? to do it. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, but neither uh, did. We, we thought we had got uh, productions, but productions, as you know, come and go, and uh, they, neither of these productions quite materialized. But hmm. it was very helpful working with them. Hmm. People often think of writing as such a solitary thing, and certainly the actual act of doing it is theater requires you to be involved with a much larger group of people once at least the main draft is completed to your satisfaction. Do you like the socializing aspect of theater or do you like the privacy and solitude of writing alone? Well, I like both. I have to say I do like the social aspect. I most of the actors I've worked with I've liked very much and admired and, uh, and found it very interesting, the process of working with them. Um, and I like the difference between writing plays and writing novels. Uh, writing novels, that is, it's just you and the novel. There's, there's nothing else doesn't exist at all. A play is a completely different thing. 
people sometimes say, do you have any control over your plays? And it's not like that. It's not a question of control. You bring something, you bring the text, uh, and the actors and the director have to bring something, they have to bring themselves to the play just as you brought yourself to the play. They have to find some way of, uh, of interpreting the characters you've written in their own personalities. Um, and if an author could be provided with automatons uh, who did his plays exactly as he specified, it wouldn't work. They wouldn't come to life. What brings a play to life is other human beings working on the text you've done and finding ways inside themselves of doing it. That's the first stage. And then the next stage is the involvement of the audience. A play is not uh, actors standing on the stage talking to themselves. A play is actors standing on the stage talking to an audience uh, who make communicating with them who are trying to understand what the actors are doing, sympathizing or not sympathizing with what the actors are doing. And in the end, it's that interaction between the actors and the audience which makes live theatre, makes it so different from everything else. And that seems an appropriate place to stop and say, Michael Frayn, thank you so much for being with us today thank on you. Downstage Center. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Taz Matar. Post-production is by Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. This edition of Downstage Center was recorded in Amacham Studios in London. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing, and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theatre Wing. Also, be sure to check out our YouTube channel. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, please remember that we're a not-for-profit organization and consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit our website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theater.